Hey, I'm Jason, and I want to echo uh, Ryan's welcome if you're new here. This is a really good time to be new at Southland City Church um, because what we're doing right now is uh, talking through some of the core ideas that shape what we're trying to become as a church. So a little while ago, um, we were getting started, like last week. It's kind of a joke. We don't have much history as a church, but, but a little while ago, we first started uh, talking and dreaming about a church, and the questions quickly become, like, what's the church going to be like, right? And so rather than go quickly to some of the tangible, deliverable kind of stuff, the things that you can describe really concretely, we wanted to live upstream from that a little bit and talk about uh, a way of describing the spirituality that we see in Jesus and the way that we understand that our community is, is, is called to live out that way of being human that we see in Jesus. So at, with that sort of impulse, uh, we started using some mantras, and they developed sort of naturally early on for us. These phrases that became ways of describing that sort of upstream picture of that, that way of Jesus lived out for our community. And they're a little bit uh, cheeky or bizarre, but that's kind of intentional. They're meant to have some traction to them. They're meant to be a little bit like they stick with you. And so we're working through them uh, as a refresher for those of us who have been on this journey for a little bit as a community, as an introduction for those of us who are new to this community. And our hope is not just that they help you understand what South and City Church is doing, uh, but like, I really hope they're a gift to you, like in your everyday life. Uh, we've had a couple of neat examples about that. I even had an email from a friend uh, today in our community who the mantra that we're talking about today, we might see if we can use that to serve her and her teammates in her work, and I'm pretty excited about that. So, uh, so these are the mantras. We've already talked about practices, not performances, uh, which is the good news that your life doesn't have to be a performance. Your faith doesn't have to be a performance. Like you have nothing to prove. Failure is not fatal, and since it's not a performance, you're liberated to practice, to stretch and to try and to fail and to try again and grow into this way. And you don't have to come here to see a performance, which is nice. Uh, so even here when we gather, like we can just practice these movements together. Uh, the other mantra that we've talked about so far, Ryan mentioned, is everyone an icon that every human being, the first, uh, the most enduring, most important word about that person is that they bear the image of God and teach us something about the divine that we can learn from one another. And that our job then is to learn to see in one another that little bit of God that's refracted in every different kind of person. This week, uh, we've got another mantra. We'll get to it a little later on, but we're gonna, uh, we're gonna jump in. Everybody ready to go? Come on, Tuesday. All right. I know you had a long work day. It's the early part of the week. Uh, ever been to a restaurant for the first time, you've never been there before, and you're kind of excited? Uh, by the way, if you're new here, all of my metaphors are culinary or, or musical, so deal with that. But you ever, you ever been to like a restaurant for the first time, maybe you've heard good things about it, and you sit down and you're handed the menu, and page after page after page is just like loaded with possibility, and like that little fluttery, excited feeling comes inside you, you know, and you think like, this is going to be good, right? Like you're looking around the room, you're taking in the vibes, it's, it's kind of a cool place, and you're thinking about all the possibilities that lay before you as you stand on the, on, on the threshold of what's going to be a cornucopia of culinary gastronomical delight, right? Like you're just like very excited. Maybe you've never had this experience, but, but this is part of my life on a regular basis. And I'm sad for you if you haven't. But anyway, so you're there and you're like, this is going to be good. And then you realize, now I have to make some decisions. I have to actually like work through the menu and, and figure out what I want to eat, right? And that can be sort of stifling if there's a lot on the menu. And you look through page after page and something dawns on you. You think, I have an expert on call. My waiter, my server, like I could ask them for a little bit of advice about how to navigate my way through the menu. And so the server comes back up and they say, have you decided what you want to order? And you say to them, could you help me? Like, like what's the really good stuff on the menu? What are you guys most known for? What are you most excited about? Is the chef doing anything special tonight? What do people love around here? And then the waiter kind of shrugs and says, I don't know, it's all pretty good. 
And all of a sudden, your expectation shifts a little bit, right? So you, you press a little harder, and you don't get any more insight from your, your waiter server, and then you order something, and it's, it's pretty good. And somewhere along the way, this thought hits you, which is no longer like, this is going to be good. The thought that hits you is, this place doesn't know what it is. They got like 17 pages of menu. They got like Italian. They got steak. They got apps. They got all, seafood. They got all this stuff, but they don't seem to know what they are. And all of a sudden, like all that possibility sort of fades, and you're just left with something kind of sad, right? Uh, that's actually what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about identity and distraction and temptation and clutter and simplicity, clarity. I, I want to talk about those things on the way to the mantra that we're invoking tonight uh, to describe what we feel called to be and to do something that I hope is a gift to you in your life. So uh, to talk about those things, I want to turn to a moment in the life of Jesus. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew's one of, the, one of the books in the New Testament, one of the parts of the collection of the Bible that tells the, the story of the actual life of Jesus. And in Matthew, uh, we're here very early in the story of Jesus in the way that Matthew tells it. So this is Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I, was, I find that uh, understatement helpful. The tempters came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now before we move on, uh, I want to bring in an interpretation of this passage that comes from a man named Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen writes a book called In the Name of Jesus where he, he, he wrestles with these temptations in Jesus' life and the way they've shown up in his life. And Nouwen says this is the moment when Jesus is tempted to make himself relevant. There's a need here. In this case, it's Jesus' own hunger, right? He has like a, an urgent, actual, tangible, bodily need, Right? And he says the temptation here is for Jesus to make himself relevant to a need, right? Like, do you have anything useful that you could do for us, right? Like, do you have anything concrete that you could offer us right now? Because there's a real need, it's urgent, it's right in front of us. And now one says that the, the temptation here is to make himself relevant. But Jesus doesn't uh, bite, he doesn't take the bait. He answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And here Satan uh, tries to throw scripture at Jesus, which seems like a misguided strategy if you ask me, but he tries. He says, for uh, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, uh, on this one, by the way, Nowen uh, has a word for this experience. Jesus is brought to the temple, which... If you could imagine like the Vatican, like a, re a world religious uh, center, right, in Rome, the Vatican, and like Washington, D.C., like a political center, and like Times Square in New York City, like a cultural center, if you could combine all three of those, that's something like what's happening at the temple for these people in this time. It's a religious center for them. It's not a it's the religious center for them. For the Israelites, it's the, Jew or the, uh, the political center for them. It's the economic center. It's like everything that matters is all piled up there, which is why it's always busy all the time. All the important people are there all the people are there sort of milling about and he's in front of all of them looking out over all of them and now one says the temptation here is for Jesus to do something spectacular like to, to actually like perform a spectacle for these people something that gets everyone's attention in front of everyone 
like you could do something so amazing, so never heard of, never seen before, something that everybody stands back and just says, wow, right? That's the temptation, the way that now one interprets this. But Jesus doesn't take the bait, and he answered him, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And now instead, this is simply the temptation to make oneself powerful. I could give you a lot of power if you want it. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. And he says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So Jesus is out there and he's tempted to make himself relevant or spectacular or powerful. Now this moment in Jesus' life, it's situated in the story of Jesus like in a very particular time. So right before this, the, the immediately preceding incident in Jesus' life is that he's baptized. And in that baptism, the word of God comes and speaks over his life and says, this is my beloved son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. And the spirit comes down. So that's the moment right before this experience. Right before this experience, Jesus has a profound experience of identity. Here's who you are. Like a word that speaks and says, here's who you are. You have a name, you have, you have worth, you have dignity. You have, he has a profound experience of identity right before this moment. And the thing that happens right after this moment, right after this moment, is that identity gets translated into a bunch of good work. Because the very next thing that happens after the temptation is Jesus starts doing his ministry. He starts getting out there, teaching people, leading people, uh, healing people, including people, loving people, on his way to a cross where he would die for people. So right after this moment, that identity is going to get translated into this good work in the world, this good gift, this good activity in the world. But between the two, you have this experience, and it's interesting because what does the tempter say every time? He says, if you are who you say you are, right? If you are the Son of God. This is right after the heavens have split open and Jesus has had this profound experience of identity, right? Here's who you are, beloved Son of God. And, and then right after this, Jesus will go out and translate that identity into really good work. And between who he is and what he's here to do, there's something that we call the temptation of Jesus, which turns out to be the moment in his life where a, a lying voice takes his identity and tries to leverage it for a slight distraction. And the reason I say a slight distraction is Jesus is about to do a bunch of things that turn out to be very relevant and spectacular and powerful. He's about to feed people and, and meet some very urgent needs in the world. He's about to be resurrected, which is about as spectacular as you can get in human experience, right? He's about to show his power in the world in all sorts of ways. So he's about to do things which, in fact, are relevant, spectacular, and powerful, which is why I say it's like one degree off. And the temptation in Jesus' life between who he is and the good work that he's here to do is that he would lose clarity just a little bit. And then that, that, that identity would actually get leveraged toward things he's not supposed to be doing, things he doesn't need to be doing, and it would take him off course and maybe fill up his life with things that he doesn't need to be doing. That's what we call the temptation of Jesus in the Gospels. Now, I call that out because like, I think when we, when we think about this moment in Jesus' life and when we think about temptation, we tend to think of like really dark and depraved stuff maybe. Like temptation is like when you're tempted to do something that you would really be ashamed of. When you're tempted to, to like really fall off course, to really hurt someone or like do something that's really, really broken or unhelpful, right? But 
While those certainly qualify, I think we might miss the more daily sort of temptations that stand for us between who we are and the work that we're called to do. Like the good gifts that we're here to give the world, right? So for example, this might explain why your calendar looks like mine has from time to time. It's full of crap. Like it's full of stuff. But if you were honest, you'd say, I don't really know why I'm doing all of this stuff. But what happened is like one at a time, one, one little moment at a time, one little opportunity at a time, you had the chance to sort of show yourself relevant, to do something meaningful, to let the world know you're here, to move a little bit toward power in the world. You want to be significant in the world. And so you get the phone call or the email or the invite. And it's really not on center with who, you're here, who you are and what you're here to do. But you took it. And maybe there was a little insecurity inside you that hurt. If you're really who you say you are, you'd be a little more in demand than you are, so you better take this gig. If you're really who you say you are, you'd, you'd be a little more powerful in your field. And maybe this gig is a chance to make yourself more powerful. And so, ironically, like, the thing that you said yes to isn't intrinsic to who you are and what you're here to do, but the way you got there was an insecurity about who you are and what you're here to do. All of a sudden, your calendar's full and your life's really, really hectic, but a year later, maybe you ask, like, I thought I was here to give something good to the world, and it doesn't feel like I, I did much of that this year. It feels like I was really busy, had a lot going on, but I'm not sure that those few particular good things that I'm here to give the world, I'm not sure they made it out into the world in any real way this year. Maybe you've been there. I've been there again and again. And if that's you, let's just say out loud, like, not every opportunity is a calling. And it may be that some of the opportunities that come your way, whether it's just the minutia of your day or it's sort of bigger things that you commit to, it may be that a little bit of insecurity about who we are, whether we've corroborated it or proven it to the world, whether we can verify it, leads us to say yes to things that we shouldn't. This isn't just a personal thing, though. Uh, believe it or not, this is a church thing, totally. And by the way, we could do like a whole long thing about how communities and churches and organizations can have like collective psychologies or consciousness in the same way that an individual can. Communities can have insecurities. Communities can have identity issues. Communities can have all that going on. So church is totally susceptible to this thing. We're like, we're like we say here's who we are. We think we know who we are. We hope we know who we are. But then we give way to the temptation to be relevant or spectacular or powerful. And then like one degree at a time, we get a little bit off. And then the, the actual good gift that we are here to give the world doesn't show up because we are so busy and so distracted. I remember uh, the church that I did work at. Um, and by the way, this is something that every church wrestles with. I've seen it everywhere. But my experience of it was at the church that I worked at. And there was a moment when our lead team sat down and we did an inventory we asked ourselves, if you did everything within our church programming that we said you're supposed to do, to sort of be fully engaged and invested in what we're doing together, if you did everything that we asked you to do, here's what you would do. You would show up once on a weekend service to attend the weekend service and bring a friend and experience this really sort of welcoming, open, inviting space where anybody with questions or anybody who's wondering about faith can be a part of this church experience. So you'd show up once with a friend to just sort of be a part of that, and you'd show up again to serve. So maybe you're a children's volunteer, and you show up Saturday night to serve in the children's space, and you come Sunday to attend the service with your friend. But then you've got a middle schooler or a high schooler, 
they don't drive yet, so then you've got to drive them back to the building that afternoon for a middle school or a high school program. And then you're going to come to Thursday night, which is our midweek believers Bible study, where we go deeper into the Word, where we worship more fully without reservation. So you're going to come back on Thursday night, but then you're going to be in a small group that might meet on Wednesday night or Friday night or Saturday morning, because everybody knows that a good believer needs small community too, right? And then you better be serving out there in the community somewhere, because let's not be that insular church that only does things with ourselves, so get out there. And it's like seven times a week. And by the way, that doesn't include any of the things that we've said that you ought to be doing like in your personal life and in your private life and the way that parenting is following Jesus and the way that marriage is following Jesus and the way that showing up at your job is following Jesus. Like, even without including that, it's just exhausting. So credit to my teammates there. We tried to get really serious about clearing some of that out, but it can happen again and again. And if, if on an individual level we need to remember that not every opportunity is a calling, I think the church actually needs to remember that not every need is a calling. And that's really hard. Because we don't want to be calloused. We don't want to ignore the needs around us. But here's how I know that not every need is a calling for an individual local church. Here's how I know. Because the needs are infinite. There's no end to that. There's no bottom to it. The needs are infinite, and we are not. So I'm actually really convinced, like, not every need is a calling. That's not an excuse to be insulated. That's not an excuse to ignore the needs. It's not an excuse to put our head in the sand or forget about how our community is hurting or our world is breaking. But, but still, we've got to be clear on, like, who we are and what we're up to. Or we'll find ourselves distracted, like, one degree at a time and then wonder what happened to that good gift that we were trying to give the world. We could be the kind of church that mistakes activity for impact. We could be really busy and have lots going on, but never um, get really clear on, like, what are we here to give the world? We're not here to give the world everything because we're not everyone, right? But what are we here to give the world? We're almost to our mantra, uh, but to get there, uh, I want to say that I'd like to take you all to Tokyo. If I could, I'd put you all on an airplane to Tokyo, and we would go have an object lesson, a demonstration in what we're getting at here today. I would take you to Tokyo, and I would say, we are about to have one of the best culinary experiences in the known world. And I don't say that subjectively. I mean, I'm going to take you to a place that according to every chef, every culinary list, the best critics in the world, the most discerning palates, the connoisseurs of the culinary world all say this is one of the best places in the world that you should go to. This is on a list of the top 20, the top 30 in the world for a culinary experience. This is the kind of place that some crazy snotty reviewers who apparently have more money than you and I say it's worth getting on a plane and traveling across oceans just to eat at this place. It's a place where heads of state have been known to travel across oceans just to eat there. I, I I would take you to this place that's world-renowned and very important and very expensive. And then I would, I would get to the front door of this place and show you this and you'd be like, huh? Because <laughs> we would have walked into the basement of an ugly office building in a nondescript neighborhood in Tokyo and come to a place that looks like it might be the equivalent of, I don't know, like a, a Japanese greasy diner? Like, this is the place? And I would tell you, this is Jiro's Sushi Shop. Anybody seen the documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Okay, later tonight, go to Netflix, check it out. Super great. So Jiro is a sushi man who's in his 90s now, an old Japanese man, who for something like 60 years has been making sushi right here in this sushi restaurant in the basement of a nondescript office building in Tokyo, Japan. And sushi has built a worldwide reputation for doing something that is so exquisite 
and so important, so beautiful, so meaningful, so special that you should travel halfway around the world to walk into the basement of a building that looks like nobody cares about it just to experience what's happening there. The meal costs something like $300 US and it might last for 30 minutes. I know that's crazy. If you watch the documentary, you'll see like you sit there at the little counter, there's like 20 seats in this place, that's it. And without a lot of ceremony, Jiro will make the first bite of sushi and put it on your plate and stare at you awkwardly while you eat it in one bite and then put the next one in front of you and you'll move through something like a 14 course menu with very little fanfare without any of the trappings that tell the world, hey, this is where it's at, right? But something so exquisite is happening there that the world takes notice. There's a moment in the documentary where Jiro through a translator says, chefs from around the world will come and they'll eat my sushi and they'll ask me, how can something so simple taste so deep? I remember like the first time I heard that, there was something about that that was like way bigger than sushi for me. And uh, this brings us to our mantra. It's a little cheeky, but we actually mean it. The mantra is sushi, not fish stew. Sushi, not fish stew. I imagine, so like your Jiro, right? And maybe like you get your hands on this really, really exquisite tuna. And what I mean is like you send your fishmonger out to the, to the daily auction where these, these beautiful big tuna have come straight out of the ocean. And, and the finest people who know how to look for the right tuna are there uh, gauging the tuna, making sure it's great. They take a little cut out of it. They use a flashlight to test the texture of the meat and make sure it's perfect. And then they bring this beautiful specimen into the restaurant. And, uh, and, and Jiro's there and you're there and Jiro says, I have the most beautiful tuna. I have the best tuna. It's the, just, this is something exquisite that has come from the earth, from nature, and it's here for us. I can't wait for you to experience this. And you say, bring it on, right? And then he goes back in the kitchen, and he jingles around a bunch of pots and pans, and he comes back out, and he puts a pot in front of you, and it's fish stew. And somewhere in the pot, in the mix, along with all the other stuff that he's added and done to it, all of his impressive technique, somewhere in there's some tuna, and you'd be a little bit like, wait, but I thought you said like you had something really great. Why would you do that? Why, why, would, why would you like pile it in fish, uh, into fish stew? I suspect that like Jiro over his 60 years has had some temptations. Like um, again and again, as he's doing something so noteworthy in his little restaurant in the basement of an office building, I suspect um, that often the question could have arisen for him, what's the most we can do with this? We got a brand that people all around the world know. We have technique and recipes that apparently really work. I, I imagine the temptation again and again is like, what's the most we could do with this? What's the biggest vision we can have for this? So let's franchise this thing, baby, right? Or let's knock out a wall and double the size of this thing. Or let's add appetizers to the menu and apply our technique. Or let's put dessert alongside this thing. Or let's ship out like, you know, frozen versions of my sushi for you to have in your home and leverage the brand. Like what's the most we could do with this thing that we have? But it appears that at least in Jiro's case, the question, what's the most we could do with this? And the question, what's the best we could do with this? Are two different questions with two different answers. And it appears that for 60 years, he's been choosing the best. And when the answer to that question is different than the answer to what's the most, he seems to keep going with what's the best we could do with this. These are the kind of questions we want to wrestle with as a church. Um, so like a few examples of what sushi not fish stew has meant for us and will continue to mean for us. Uh, when we were getting started as a church, we spent like a year doing one very basic thing. We'd gather at first like once a month or every couple of months and then eventually every Wednesday night, 
We got to the brick and we sat in a circle and we sang together and prayed a little bit and read the book of Acts. We did that for a long time. And there's probably a lot of ways of like building a community that would have said much earlier we should have added much more. And I'm not even saying that would have been the wrong thing, but it wasn't the right thing for us to do. I'm certain of that. Because we were, we were clear out like on this sushi, not fish stew thing. Like we're here to do something simple that hopefully the simplicity actually gives way to its depth. And so we'll just keep doing this thing. We won't really apologize for it. We'll just kind of open up this text and see what it says to us and keep pressing into it together, right? Um, eventually, though, there are a few more things that we needed to do to be faithful as a church, like to live out what we're supposed to be. And so we'd be um, gathering like as a leadership team or like talking about opportunities that we have or ways that we could expand what we offer as a community. And it was really important to us that before we just start slapping programs and opportunities together on the menu, right, it was really important to us that we think about a framework that maintains some simplicity for us. So maybe you've been here and you've heard us talk about gatherings, tables, and streets. Th that's really intentional. Those aren't just like, like marketing angles. Those are meant to keep, keep us fo focused on some kind of simplicity. So gatherings are what we're doing right now in this room. It's this space, this time. Tables are when we gather for meals together, and there's no curriculum. We don't try to pack that with Bible study, but we just, just try to stay very focused on hospitable, honoring space for one another around a meal together. And streets is the ways that we meet our neighbors on common ground uh, in shared spaces in our city and around the world. So that simple framework, it was really important to us that we maintain that before we start just adding a bunch of programs and seeing what kind of stew we can make out of it, right? Uh, this is why, um, by the way, we don't have a mission statement. Have you noticed that? We have an identity statement. Mission statement is like, here's what we're here to do. Our identity statement is meant to be, here's what we're trying to become. And it's a nuance that matters a lot to me as we think about being a church together. Our identity statement is a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And I don't want a mission or an activity or a program or an offering or a menu that's at war with that identity. We really want to just look for the ways that we ground ourselves in that identity. Um, ways of praying together, worshiping together, and living out of that identity together in our city. Uh, this is why um, we actually have tried really hard to maintain a visual simplicity, or what I sometimes call like an aesthetic minimalism. So maybe you just thought we haven't gotten around to it yet, but like, like we've really worked hard in this space um, to add those things which are helpful, which kind of humanize the space that we're in right here, but to, to, not, to not, not do anything that, that we don't have to do to make this space functional. It's like we have these screens that are you know, mounted on the, on, the, on the pillars in here. And uh, the temptation would be uh, to like use those screens when you walk in here at the beginning of our gathering. Maybe you get here a couple minutes early, which you know, with our community means like three minutes late, but like maybe you get here a little early and um, you know, you got some downtime and so we just loop all the opportunities that are going on here. Hear me out, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but for what we're trying to do, it doesn't feel like the right thing for us. We, we feel like you, all day long, everything is getting hammered at you. Like most of us, let's be honest, you're driving, you're listening to talk radio and you're checking Twitter when an email comes in, right? That's a lot coming at you. I'm not condoning that behavior. I don't ever do that, but I've seen you. No, I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> So you have a lot coming at you, right, all day long. And I'm actually quite concerned that if we, just sort of, if we just sort of proliferate that in this space, we won't help one another settle into identity. So we, we actually have said again and again as a team, now hear me out, there might be an occasion where we put an announcement on the, slot, the screen, okay? But in general, like, I kind of want you to walk into a space where there's nothing to stimulate you for a bit. Just, just to like clear out, create a little bit of barrenness, a little bit of simplicity, a little bit of minimalism here. So you can just like rem remember that you're here, mind, body, soul, like collect yourself, gather yourself together. This is why we insist 
on a, a visual or an aesthetic simplicity that we try to maintain. This is why we maintain a doctrinal simplicity. So if you've heard us preach, if you go to our website, it's pretty simple for us. We're a Jesus-centered community. We trust the Bible as it points to Jesus. We trust the Apostles' Creed as a guiding interpretation of what it teaches. Apostles' Creed is a, is a pretty short statement. I don't know if you've ever read it. You can go on our website and check it out. This is an ancient, sort of from early in the church, um, summary or assessment of what we see in this story and what God's calling us into. And what strikes me about it is the, the simplicity of those things actually gives way to great depth. The, the depth isn't like contrary to the simplicity of saying we're, we're a Jesus-centered community, we're gonna let the scriptures keep pointing us to the good news of Jesus and how he's teaching us to become human and what God has done for us. And we're not gonna give you like a 30-page doctrinal statement, we're not gonna give you position papers on a bunch of things, like we're gonna insist on that simplicity there too to create room for the kind of depth that emerges organically in a community. Uh, so uh, visual simplicity, doctrinal simplicity, um, these are really important to us, and that's why we do some of these things as a community. Now, I've been talking about some concrete, like, deliverables, right? I've been talking about the way we design the room, the way we run a program, the way we organize our church life together. And I just want to call something out, and we've set it before in this series. Uh, these are distinctives for us as a community, but distinction is not necessarily critique. So in some ways, these might be different than the way that other communities live out their life together. Um, we have absolutely no interest or energy in, in, in offering these as critique of other communities, especially because from the outside looking in, it can be very hard to know if busyness or if, if a lot of programs are birthed out of a distraction from identity or a clarity of identity. Because some of the busiest people I know and some of the most productive organizations I know, they're busy and productive because they're so clear on who they are and they've grown into that identity and now they wake up every day kind of hitting on those cylinders. So I'm not offering this as a critique. And like, let's be really careful. Like, when we talk about what this looks like in a life or a church, um, let's not use that against anyone else. But I do want you to understand why we are doing what we're doing and maybe how you could be a part of it. Now, maybe you think to yourself, this all sounds really good, like on a personal level and for the church, like to, to, to vet the things that come at you through the lens of your identity. But what if you're not really clear on your identity? What about that, right? Well, here's the good news, guys. I think we can reverse engineer this. What I mean is if you start with clear identity, I think you can maintain simplicity and focus. But if we get a little fuzzy on identity, I think you can start with simplicity and it can help you get back to identity. So like on my personal life, here's an example of this. And we've talked about this a little bit before when Ryan taught us on Sabbath. But uh, Sabbath experience for me is a, is a minimalism or a simplicity experience that I do every week. It's a little bit like this wilderness thing with Jesus where it's barren, right? There's no people around. There's no distractions around. So for me, here's what Sabbath looks like. Uh, every Thursday night around midnight, my team knows that I'm going offline until Saturday. Uh, you can hit me up until midnight or so, and then I'm going dark. Around, uh, be before midnight, I've gone through my house. I've gotten rid of all the clutter because there's a bunch of like objects and artifacts in my house. My dining room is my home office. So like, like there are artifacts, there are things on the table and around me that like will speak to me about like what I'm here to do, right? Like about my work. And so I, I actually like remove all those. I, I tuck them away, I put them on shelves. I try to um, actually have sort of a visual sort of emptiness in the room there. I go grocery shopping Thursday night, so I don't have to go out Friday and like get some food or anything like that. And then Thursday around midnight, I delete Slack, which is our work messaging app, and I delete Twitter, I delete, delete Instagram, and delete my mail from my phone. And, uh, and then I just 
That's it. Like, things are dark. And I wake up Friday morning, and it's awesome. Just kidding. It sucks. It's so hard, you guys. The first couple hours, most Fridays are really difficult for me. Um, a lot of things will happen in that space. And I've got to believe this is a little echo of, of what we're learning from Jesus here. That like, go into a barren place, kind of clear things out. And you'll start to get some weird messages. Some things will kind of bubble up inside, right? Like, man, if you were who you, said you said, say you are, you would have done better this week. You would have came through this week on these things you didn't come through on. You would have led the church toward uh, greater success than you, you did on that project or that task or that program. That kind of stuff will bubble up for a little bit. It's like the voice is saying, if you are who you say you are, why don't you go back and get that laptop and finish the job that you didn't finish yesterday, you know? If you are who you say you are, like, you wouldn't feel so impotent on some of these issues that you guys are working against as a church, the things that you're trying to move in the world, if you are who you say you are, right? If you are who you say you are, you would produce more. You would have so much to show for it in the world, you know? Some of that stuff will bubble up a little bit. And um, what I'm learning is that, like, simplicity can lead to clarity of identity in the same way that clarity of identity can maintain simplicity, because... First of all, what happens in that simplicity is your identity gets challenged a little bit, like Jesus here, right? If you are who you say you are. And then it's in the challenge that you have the opportunity to, to, to deepen, to, to grow into that identity even further, right? Like, I don't think Jesus goes to the wilderness after his baptism because he's just so great on identity now that he's showing off. I think he goes to the wilderness to actually deepen and strengthen and reinforce that moment of identity that he just had, right? And if he goes straight from the baptism into the work, it's like it maybe hasn't like, dug its roots into him yet, right? So he has to go to the place where everything is sort of taken away. There's no activity. There's no distraction. And in the simplicity, in the, in, in the minimalism of that, of that space, he can get confronted, get challenged, get tempted, and then grow out of that. And so I'm actually saying, I think for you and for me, like in our personal lives, if we realize there's a bit of clutter, there's a bit of distraction going on, and we're not sure how to like get our way back to identity, I think one thing that we could do is actually make a concerted move toward clearing some stuff out, go through the crucible, because it can be a bit of a crucible, and, and discover through it like a little bit of reconnection with who we're actually here to be, and then get to the work that we're actually here to do. And as a community, I'm um, pretty convinced that one of the ways that we'll grow in our own communal identity, one of the ways that we'll stay clear on it, is that we will resist just sort of piling on. There'll be things that we'll add from time to time. There'll be things that we change from time to time. Um, but as a community, we have to have the discipline to say not every opportunity is a calling, not every need is a calling. This means there will be things that you think we should do that we won't do, and you'll be mad about it. There are things I think we should be doing right now that we're not doing, and I'm mad about it, okay? <laughs> like, there will be that, that tension in our communal life together. That'll be normal. And sometimes we'll miss it. Sometimes there'll be something we probably should have done that we didn't do. Sometimes we'll say yes to something that we'll look back and realize that it wasn't the right move. Um, but if, if we don't feel some of that tension, I'll be concerned that we aren't honoring this mantra, sushi, not fish stew. It's interesting, uh, Henry Nouwen, the writer who interprets Jesus' experience in the wilderness in his book, In the Name of Jesus, he he seems to have something like this going on in his own life. So Nowen died uh, not too long ago, and Nowen actually was a professor at Notre Dame. He was a priest and a professor at Notre Dame, and then he uh, downgraded to Harvard and Yale. But he goes from Notre Dame to, to Yale to Harvard. I forget the order there, but Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale. 
He's a professor teaching, you know, some of the world's best and brightest, some of the most pedigreed people. His resume looks really, really impressive. He has a lot going on. But if you read Nowen's earlier work, you sense that one of the things that he's really grappling with, I mean, it's potent in his writing, is he's grappling with identity. He's, he's grappling with, like, like, who am I? I want to live out of identity. And he seems to sense that what's going on around him in the environments that he's in is in some ways at odds with that. The opportunities that he's chasing, the work that he's doing, seems to sort of be at odds with his journey toward identity. And then, uh, toward the end of his life, he takes an unexpected turn. Uh, away from rampant speaking gigs and uh, impressive professor appointments at multiple institutions at the same time, apart from all of that, he, the last move that he makes in his life is he leaves Harvard, Yale, Notre Dame behind, and he goes and he lives at the large community in Toronto, which is uh, a community for um, those who experience uh, different ability in mental or physical ways. They call it a Eucharistic community, where they live together in the actual practice of Eucharist or communion, but also like in the way of Eucharist, which is a table where we all find total common ground, and uh, we root ourselves in identity that comes at that table, right? That just says to you, here's who you are. You don't have to prove anything or do anything. And in, in the name of Jesus, he observes in his own life that for the first time in a long time, he's in an environment where nobody is saying, if you are who you say you are, Mr. Impressive Priest Professor with the pedigree, if you are who you say you are, you know, you have to write more books, you have to do more speaking engagements, you have to graduate these students. If you are, like, for the first time in a long time in his life, those messages aren't coming to him. Nobody at large seems to care about his PhD or his pedigree or the impressive things that he's done. Nobody at large seems to be saying, make yourself relevant, make yourself spectacular or powerful. They seem to simply be saying, like, be with us. We love you. You can love us. Like, let's be here. And it strikes me that, that there's something like an experience of simplicity in Nowen's life at the end that gives birth to the greatest depth that he writes. I mean, the stuff that he writes toward the end of his life, it's like he'll write a book like that big. I mean, it's, people on the podcast can't see that. It's like a very thin book, friends out there on the internet. Um, a very, very thin book, and it will just knock you over. And you'll read a paragraph and you'll say something like, I can't believe something so simple would be so deep. And I gotta believe um, that's all tied to his journey of identity and clearing things out and finally finding the freedom to be who he was. And that's what we want uh, as a community. That's what we want for one another. Um, you find yourself cluttered. If you have one of those moments that repeats itself in your life where you're like, man, I thought I was here to... To, to bring a particular gift to the world, maybe in the way that I befriend people or the work that I do or the way I serve my family or whatever, I don't know. But, and then you know, I just feel like I'm, I'm not doing that, but I'm busier than ever. Like, maybe take a deep breath. Sushi, not fish stew. <laughs> Ask yourself if you're being invited to return to some simplicity, to clear some things out, and to root yourself in identity again. Guys, um, as we talk about the church, like, I don't want to be shy or... or pretend that, like, I don't have, I don't want to pretend that I don't have, like, big dreams for our church. Um, like, I actually believe that if we're really clear on who we are, what we're here for and what we're supposed to do, like, what's the good gift that we're here to give the world? Like, I actually believe that people might um, be marked even in, in other places, and it's not that we're better than other things out there, but we have a particular thing that we're here to do. If we keep our eye on the ball and say no to a lot of things so we can say yes to a few things, like, I'm actually um, quite convinced uh, that people might say um, of their encounter with Jesus and our community, I can't believe something so simple would be so deep. 
and they might rave about it, and it might change their life. So that's, uh, that's sushi, not fish too. Will you stand to your feet if you're able? Next week is Fields, Not Factories, uh, our last mantra for this round. And we'll also take some time next week to just reflect together and carve out some space for you to see if any of these phrases is sort of a, a touch point for you in your life right now. So I'm really excited about that. And it strikes me this week um, that our, our standard benediction is also like a really great sort of example of sushi, not fish stew. It's pretty simple. But I feel like every time we say it to one another, there's a depth in it that reveals itself uh, unique for this moment. So today, let me say to you, grace and peace be with you. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.